It's good to see all of you here today, and for those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we're very happy to have you as well, and trust that you will be blessed and welcomed, and uh, we're, we're thankful that you came. I'd like for you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, that's The fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I would like to read, I'd like to go back to verse 30 and read through to verse 40. (laughs) We're certainly not going to cover all that this morning, but uh, I want to set up the context Verse 30, so they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of God. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, having come to worship you uh, in song, in prayer, in our giving, and now we worship you in the reading and preaching of your word. This is such an important passage. And so I pray this morning that you would push back all distraction that you would cause each one to focus upon your word, that it might speak to their hearts, that they might understand the great salvation that you have afforded to save us from our sin and the punishment that comes with it. And so I pray, Lord, your blessing. Do your work, I pray, in hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The passage before us this morning is the beginning of a very important section that has great doctrinal importance. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the greatest preacher that ever lived. And so it's very important that we understand what he's saying in this passage, because it really is the difference between life and death. Now we established last week from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 that all people on the face of the earth are born spiritually dead and are incapable of seeing, hearing, or otherwise responding to anything spiritual as it relates to God. That's what the scriptures teach. Mankind is dead in their trespasses and sins, and there is no response that they could give toward God in their dead, spiritually dead condition. Spiritual death that everyone is born with ends in judgment and eternal punishment for those who refuse God's gift of life through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now in the passage that we just read, verses 30 through 40, there are two sections. The first section is from verses 30 through 36, which we have already looked at. And we see there that Jesus offers life, the gift of eternal life, to these people who had gathered at the synagogue in Capernaum. But they refused to receive it and were lost in their sinful condition. Jesus said in verse 36, which is a turning point in the discourse, He said, You have seen me, and yet... You do not believe. You saw all that I did. You saw the miracles that I performed. You saw the bread that I gave you to eat. And yet, you do not believe. That places the responsibility for their unbelief directly upon them. They are responsible and God will hold them responsible for not believing in Christ Jesus. The blame of their lostness is on their heads. So we have human responsibility clearly stated. They were responsible to believe, accountable before God, but all they wanted was to satisfy their senses. They were not interested in the saving of their souls. Unless physical sight is joined with spiritual enlightenment, it profits nothing. It accomplishes nothing. And even though Jesus had done many miracles, performed many signs with his divine power, they in themselves were not able to save their souls 
from sin. It is His words, Christ's words, that have the power to save souls. So then faith, Paul says, comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. That's how people are saved. From their sins. They're saved by the word of Christ. The gospel. Not by signs and miracles. So how could these men, these people who were in the synagogue that day, how could they, who were schooled in all the Old Testament scriptures, stand before the very creator of the world, the one which the scriptures foretold would come, and not believe? It is because of the deadness and darkness of the human, lost human soul that this happens. You've seen it and I've seen it. I've talked with people before about all kinds of things. You talk about sports, you talk about work, you can talk about your lawn, and then you bring up spiritual things and the eyes glaze over and there's no light there. They're just not in tune. They don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't understand it because they can't understand it. They're oblivious to it. They're lost and they're in darkness and deadness. There are people in every age, however, of human existence who in their own pride have rejected Christ simply because he does not fit their idea of a Messiah or a Savior. They want a different kind of Savior. This was the problem with the Jews. They wanted a Messiah that would come in and stamp out Rome and set Israel up as a kingdom to rule over the nations of the world. That's what they were looking for. Jesus came not as that kind of Messiah. He will one day, but he didn't come the first time for that. The first time he came as a meek Savior a gentle Savior who would save His people from their sins. Many, many refused Him. And they still do. The Scriptures tell us that the majority of humanity will not follow Christ, will not trust in Christ. They will die in their sins and end up in an eternal hell, suffering for in torment for their the punishment of their sins forever and ever. That's what the Bible teaches. There are few... Only few that find the path to life. It's narrow. It's hard. And Jesus said few find it. Here it is. In black and white for us to see that the bread came down from heaven. He is the path. He is the bread. There is life in him. And yet, in all of the deadness of humanity, there are people who have humble hearts who see what they are in their sin and their fallenness and trust God's word and believe in God's Son. They believe in Him and He takes control of their lives as their Lord. We see it in verses 68 and 69. After all of this was said... Peter, Peter says, you alone have the words 
of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is a declaration of belief. A declaration of a changed heart. Now what follows, verse 36, verses 37 to 40 is the second part of this passage, are some of the most wonderful and yet some of the most baffling statements of all Scripture. They are paradoxically linked to what, are, to what is for some the most encouraging words of Scripture as well as some of the most dreaded and fought against words of Scripture. Years ago, when I first started preaching, for probably for the first ten years, I would not have touched these verses. I would have just jumped right over them. They're just too hard. But that does a great injustice to the Word of God. God has given us all of His Word, the full counsel of His Word, and therefore we must deal with them. Once realized for the truth that is in, contained in these verses and others like them, of which there are many, they become an anchor for the soul. They become a, a foundation to stand upon that does not sink. They become an assurance of God's working rather than our own working. They stress both the sovereignty of God over against the responsibility of man found in the previous section. Jesus was not discouraged, nor was he dissuaded from the mission that the Father had given him to accomplish, for it was rooted in the sovereignty of God. It could not fail. There's no way it would fail. Satan tried to stamp it out through all of history. And Satan failed. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. At the fullness of time, He did this. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God is one of the greatest paradoxes of all Scripture. It is described as many, from many as two parallel lines that merge or intersect in the future Of eternity. But we all know that parallel lines, ever how far they are apart from one another, are always parallel. They never intersect. At least, that's the way we comprehend it in our physical universe. The point here is that these two, these two things, the sovereignty of God over all humanity, And the responsibility of man are both biblical truths that are separate from one another and must be believed as true. I cannot explain to you how man is responsible to believe and yet God is sovereign over all the believing and the unbelieving. I can't explain that to you. And I don't know anyone who can. 
But they're both taught in Scripture. And they are both to be believed as true. There is a great example of this found in Exodus chapter 7. If you'll turn there with me. The the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus chapter 7. I'll have you notice... Beginning at uh, let's just begin at verse one, and we'll read through verse four. And the Lord said to Moses, "See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh." And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command to you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And 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 though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host and my people Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts and of judgment. Notice in verse 2, he says, You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh. Now the reason Aaron spoke was because Moses had a stuttering problem. He wasn't... He wasn't eloquent in speech. So God said, okay, well then you can take Aaron along. He's, he's, he's a, can be your spokesman, your prophet. And so he said, tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> God commands that Aaron tell Pharaoh to let the people go. So Aaron speaks these words to Pharaoh. He is commanding Pharaoh from God's viewpoint. So it's the same as Pharaoh being commanded by God himself. It's the same today. When we look into the scripture and we see God's commands, God is commanding certain things. But there are many who do not obey God's command. Now notice... Verse 3, you say these words to Pharaoh, but I, God, am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And through, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I'm going to cause all kinds of terrible things to happen in Egypt. But I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he does not listen to what you say. God did that. Wasn't Pharaoh that did that. God did it to Pharaoh. So God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he disobeys God's command. God is going to show Pharaoh who he is by doing these great signs and wonders in Egypt. <clears throat> Notice the next part. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host and my people 
<clears throat> the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, wait a minute, God. <clears throat> Isn't that kind of unfair? Isn't it kind of unfair for you to command Pharaoh to do something and then harden his heart so that he doesn't do it and then punish him because he didn't do it? Isn't that kind of unfair? But you see, folks, it's not a matter of fairness. Fairness doesn't enter into it at all. It's a matter of God acting and being God. God can do all that he wills to do. Let's follow on. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he refuses to obey. And now God is going to judge Pharaoh for that for which his heart was hardened. God delivers his people from Egypt and judges Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their acts of defiance for which they are responsible. So even though God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh is still responsible for his actions. The scriptures do not see God's sovereignty over Pharaoh in hardening his heart as destroying Pharaoh's moral accountability. He is still accountable. So is God unjust to act this way? Is God wrong in commanding something and then, and then punishing the command for which he hardened the heart? No, he's not. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Our God, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He's that way in all his works. Whether he extends mercy to a sinner or whether he hardens a sinner. He is just and he is upright in all his works. In fact, later on in this story, we find that Pharaoh admits he was wrong. And he admits that the people of, of Egypt were wrong in their wicked doings before God and his messenger Moses and Aaron. Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like Pharaoh's had a change of heart. Sounds like maybe Pharaoh is coming to recognize who God is, and and repenting of his sins. But we know that that is not the case. Because Pharaoh did not repent of his sins. He just simply admitted that he was wrong and kept on sinning. Romans chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is Paul writing about this very incident, The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. In other words, God doing all of the deeds that he did in Egypt was showing his power by hardening Pharaoh's heart so that God could show that he was God. 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I don't know how much more plain you can get. God is God, and man is man. A man has no right to point the finger in God's face and say you were unfair. That will not hold up in his courtroom. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Now that's the introduction. I want you to see, now we're going to look at this passage. We're going to tear it apart piece by piece. And so this morning we're only going to get that first phrase of verse 37. Uh, as our as our subject this morning, as our text, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So let's look at it. There are five eternal truths that our Lord declares in this passage, verses 37 to 40. And this is where we'll be for the next few weeks in this part of the passage. They... We could call them five statements of God's sovereign work. Here they are. I mentioned them last week briefly. And I'm just going to mention them briefly here because we're going to take each one and look at them separately as we go through. Number one, those whom whom the Father gave to Christ will come to Him. That's number one, verse 37a. Second, those who come to Him will be certain to be welcomed. Verse 37b. Verse 38. His reason for appearing among men was to do the Father's will. Number four. The Father's will was the preservation of those whom he had given to his Son. Verse 39. And last of all, this preservation of those given... Is the guarantee of eternal life to those who believe, which are sealed, which this whole thing is sealed by the resurrection of Christ and his raising of those same people on the last day. Now there's a lot there. So let's look at this first phrase. And let's, uh, there are two divine, there are two elements here. In the declaration, there's the divine element of the choice and will of the Father carried out in the purpose and power of the Son. That's the first thing. The second is the element of beholding Him or coming to Him or looking upon Him and believing. And all of those terms are synonymous. So let's dissect it. And when we do this, I would ask... That you would put aside any of your biased presuppositional understandings of this whole thing between the sovereignty of God and the, and the responsibility of man aside. And let's just take scripture for what it says with no out, outside interference of beliefs or or doctrines that might taint it. All right? It's still a problem today, by the way. That's the problem, is that people just don't take the Scriptures 
for what they say. They try to read into them things that aren't there. So here we go. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes, I won't cast out. Now that's a bold statement. It's a statement that could only come from one who has supernatural knowledge of the Father's plan and operation, which the Son had from all eternity past. The Son was there when the Father decreed all that should come to pass, every person that should ever be created, and all that should ever be done. That was all fixed in God's decree from the past. God, God put it down, and it came, comes to pass as He decreed it would happen. <clears throat> Now notice that we will see this again in verse 44 and in verse 65. Which brings us to one of the, one of the cardinal rules of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. And that is the, the rule of multiple mention. When God mentions something more than once, even if it's mentioned in different ways, we are to pay attention to it. Because he is not just wasting words. He is affirming what he says over and over again. Which I'm thankful for because I'm kind of thick-headed. And I was thick-headed for many years on this, on this whole subject. And I argued it from an eisegetical standpoint, taking my presupposition and trying to drive it into what the scripture said. When I should have been taking the scripture and tearing it apart and letting it change my thinking. This is the first time that Jesus has attempted to explain man's unbelief. They will not come to him to have life because they will not believe. And they will not believe because they cannot believe. And they cannot believe because they will not. In this explanation, Jesus says that the Father gives people to the Son. That means that those who are given to the Son were owned by or belonged to the Father. Well, when did he own them? And, and did he, is this, is this mentioned more than once? Oh, it's mentioned so many times. Uh, turn to John 17 with me. Verified again by Jesus himself. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. God gave people to the Son. And it was those people that God gave life. No one else. Just those people. Look at verse 9. Jesus is praying. 
He prays for them. He says, I, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world at large, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So now we see that there is a joint ownership of these people that the father owned and is given to the son. And now the father and the son both own them collectively. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That I may, they may see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's key. That verse is key to understanding why God would give certain sinners out of the masses of sinners. Why he would give certain ones to his son. Why would he do it? No, None of them deserved it. None of them should have been gifts to the son. They were all rebels. They were all sinners. They all hated God. And yet God loved them. And he loved his son. And that's why he gave them. Because of his love for the son. And because he loves the son. He loves all that are in his son. All that have trusted his son. All that believe in the son. So let's back it up. Make sure we understand how this came to pass. Before the world was created, God the Father loved the Son and chose out of humanity that He would create. They hadn't been created yet. This was before the universe was ever created. Out of the mass of humanity that He would create, those who would belong to Him would be given to the Son for the express purpose of the Son receiving them as love gifts. That ought to humble you to your knees. That such a sinner as I would be a love gift to the Son of God. I don't understand it. How could he love you and me so much when we were so rotten? The fact is he loved us in his son. He didn't love us for ourselves because we were rotten to the core. They were his possession from all eternity. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before the creation, that we should be holy and blameless before him. <clears throat> James White correctly says, The giving by the Father to the Son precedes and determines the coming of the person to Christ. And that's exactly what we see here. We see the Father giving people to the Son. And we see those people coming to the Son. But they would not come had they not been given. So the phrase, this phrase 
of ten words in the first part of verse 37 has both has in it both the doctrine of unconditional election and irresistible grace. And what does that mean? Unconditional election means that there were no conditions placed upon you that you might come to God. No conditions. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't work your way. You didn't have anything that would please Him. It is all unconditional, His choosing. The grace part of it is irresistible. Because dead people don't respond to anything. It's by God's grace, by God's mercy. He regenerates the individual. He brings them to life. And he he draws them to Himself by an irresistible force of grace. That which they do not deserve, He gives them. And they come willingly when He, see, when he does this. Now, <clears throat> the action of coming is dependent upon the action of giving. It is not a mere coincidence that you came to Christ. You didn't just wake up one day and say, hmm, you know what? I think I'll be a Christian. It doesn't happen that way, folks. Something outside of you has to happen. You have to, you have to hear the gospel. You have to be confronted with your sin. You have to be confronted with the fact that you have to repent of your sins and turn from that life and trust in Christ alone. To forgive you and make you his own. It's not a coincidence. Think of all the circumstances that could have happened. That could have hindered or even derailed your coming to Christ. I can think of so many in my, in my life that could have just completely derailed me from coming to know the Lord. Could have been in a bus accident that night that I was saved driving from Fairfield, California down to Oakland. Could have been an accident. We could have all been killed. Didn't happen. See, the circumstances the circumstances are, are enormous when you begin to think of all that could have happened. But God promises that all He gives the Son will come. It's a guarantee. God does not wait For those who are His to come to Him on their own. For if He did, they would never come. They would be content to remain in their sins. I didn't know that I needed Christ. I didn't care. I was happy with living my life the way I wanted to live it. And so were you. It takes a divine work to bring people to the place of recognition of their lostness before God. John writes in chapter 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, here's what He's going to do. He is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He convicts people of their sins. He shows them the righteousness of Christ. And He shows them that judgment is either on them, their own heads or it's on Christ. One or the other. 
So he gives them to his son Jesus and works all the circumstances of their coming to him so that there is not one single one left out. Isn't that great? That means the gospel will absolutely, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel will absolutely be a success anywhere around the world that it's preached. Because God's not going to lose a single one of those he gave his son. You may be saying to yourself at this point, how do I know if I'm one of them? Have you believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and taken Him and following Him as your treasure in life? That's how you know. So He gives them to the Son... Not one is left out. He saves them all. And remember, according to verse 35, coming to Jesus is equal is equal to believing in Jesus. So pay attention to the order of Jesus' words here. He does not say that people, that because people come to Jesus and believe in Him, then God gives them to Him. That is not what it says. That's what a lot of people believe. That God sort of looked down through the corridors of time. He saw those that were going to believe. And based on that, he, he brings them to Christ and gives them to him as, as gifts. No, that's not what it says. That would place the emphasis clearly in the hands of man. That would make man sovereign in salvation. It is God. It is God who gives them, and then they come believing. Ever since the fall in the garden, God has been bringing those that belong to Him to Himself through the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. In the Old Testament, it was a, it was a looking forward to the cross. In the New Testament, It's looking back to the cross as a historical event. Once it was a future event and God's, the people of God trusted in the sacrifices that God told them to make as a view to what would happen on the cross. And now that it's happened, we look directly to Christ who hung on the cross and rose again. Now, Their coming to the Son is an absolutely secure thing. It will happen. And the coming is emphasized in the word all. It sees those who come to Christ as a complete collective group. They are made up, however, of individuals who in time trust Christ sometime throughout their life. Before death. For some, it's, it's on the day of their death. For others, it's when they're little children. And for others, it's midlife. I once knew a man who uh, I invited to write a... His name, was, his name was Mr. Englebright. Mary would remember him. Mr. and Mrs. Englebright, they were in their 80s. Not Christians. Invited them to come on a bus with, a, with about 70 children. 
They came. They rode the bus to church that morning. They went went to church and uh, they sat through the sermon. And God opened their hearts and their eyes to see their sin. And they trusted in Christ as their Lord. They became faithful, faithful people in their 80s. That don't happen very often, folks. But you see, God's power is not limited to age. So ever since the fall in the garden, God has been bringing people that belong to himself to himself. It started with Adam and Eve. They came to God. Did they come to God believing? No. You know what they did. They ran and hid. Wrapped themselves with fig leaves. Ran and hid in the, in the, in the brush. God comes along. Adam, where are you? He's cowering. What, are you, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat from? Yeah. So God, what does God do? Well, Adam can't do anything about this. It's too late for him. So God takes an animal and he kills it. And he takes the skin of the animal and he covers Adam and Eve with the skin. Which was the first blood sacrifice. You see, there's no redemption without the shedding of blood. And so the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross is very important. It is the, it is the thing that saves. And so he brought them back into relationship with himself. And he's been doing that ever since that day. The giving of people to the Son from the Father is a divine transaction that demonstrates the love that the Father has for His Son. You are a love gift to Christ when you believe. God gives you to the Son and you believe, you come and believe in Him. I've seen it happen so many times. Happened to myself. It happens to everyone who believes. In it, in it, there is the forgiveness of sin, and the judgment of God is taken away because Christ took the judgment on Himself in your behalf. You see, this is all about Christ and the love that the Father has for Christ. It's not about us. We're the beneficiaries of this. But it's about Him. That's why all praise and glory goes to Him in this. Listen to to the Scriptures. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. John 17, 26 again. "I I made them known your name and I will continue to make it known the love that which you with which you loved me, may be in them and I in them. John MacArthur writes, The unbelief of spiritually dead sinners cannot thwart the saving work of God. Hallelujah. 
having chosen them in eternity past, he graciously and irresistibly calls them to himself. And I would add, in time. What a great, loving God we have who cared for our souls even when we didn't care for our own souls. Now that pretty much completes the first phrase of verse 37. And next week we will carry on with that uh, that next part where he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Great words. So hang in there. I know that not everyone is on the same page here. But allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. And allow God to be God. And you be the one who's being taught. Rather than the other way around. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, Lord's Day, for the work that you do in the lives of sinners. Thank you for making us gifts to your Son, Jesus. We didn't deserve to be a gift to him. Ugly and sinful we were. But you took us and cleaned us up. You gave us as gift to your son so that we might glorify him and glorify you. So I pray that you would teach us these things and help us to learn them in the humility that we should have because we had nothing really to do with it. It's all your work. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless this passage of Scripture and these truths that we are looking at. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions about...